I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm freezing my balls off right now, guys, because the state of Texas, or at least the, sta- the part of the state of Texas in which I reside, is more and more starting to resemble a block of ice. I kid you negative, boys and girls. Right now, outside my doorstep, even as I record all of this, there is plentiful amounts of snow. Well, snow. There's a little bit of snow, but mostly at this point it's just ice that's on the ground. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the inner workings of Texas climate, that's what the experts call quite completely unusual. So, being as it's 20-something degrees outside and, uh, it's everything I can do not to develop a severe case of frostbite. I've got my space heater going right now, so if you hear this grinding sound that's going on in the background, there's a very good chance that North Korea has launched the big one at us, or more likely, that's just my space heater doing its its fair share to keep me from turning into a Magnus sickle. Now, today's episode, auspicious for... I would say quite a few reasons, but maybe the most obvious of which is the fact that I'm launching in this episode a mega series that I've come uh, come to call Batman, the Kate Crusades. This is going to be an epic 24-part mega series that's going to pretty well engulf my entire year of 2018, and I guess I'm going to talk about you know, why it is that it's happening this way in just a few moments. But before I circle back to that, I just want you guys to understand there are reasons why I chose this year to talk about so many Batman comics. But as I say, all in due time. For right now, though, what I want to do is introduce today's subject matter, which is to say Batman Year One, which for Batman fans of my generation, this was this was sort of like Batman boot camp. You know, a lot of the core fundamentals that you need to know about Batman maybe weren't necessarily introduced 
in year one because, you know, there's a very strong argument that a lot of that stuff maybe was set down for a new generation with the Dark Knight Returns. But as far as continuity and the importance of this man's world, this character's world, and who he is as a person, a lot of that stuff started getting set down right here in Batman Year One. Now, as I say, this 24-part mega series is, well, it's 24 parts, and it's being launched right now, but notwithstanding the fact that I'm pretty sure that all of these episodes have turned out pretty well, and if it sounds like I've already recorded 23 out of the 24, well, that would be because I have, in fact, recorded 23 out of the 24. Notwithstanding all of that, what I wanted to do was sort of give myself a little bit of a dividend in this episode. What I wanted to do was bring in a, a co-host who could, well, let's just, let's just call it what it is, haul my ass out of the fire in case it comes, it comes down to it. Because, guys, we've all heard the Secret Origin episode. It could come to that in the end. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to this show for the first time in 2018 the host and founder of Views from the Longbox, the lead blogger of The Fortress of Baileytude, and the co-host and co-founder of, honestly, too many podcasts for me to ever mention here, although I did one time give it uh, the old college try in a much previous episode, and I have no desire to repeat that feat here. I welcome back to the show, for the first time since the last time, Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome back, sir. How are you? See, this is why introducing you is so much easier, because, like, you have all the build-up, but there's, like, basically one show. You know, it's just, you do this. Now, on that, you do these five things. But, no, I've got to be the one that's all complicated and has my own podcasting network because I can only really work with myself um, well, on a regular basis. Well, think of it like basis, this. You so. are like a podcasting mogul. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. No, thank you for having me, and thank you for asking me to talk about uh, one of the uh, Holy Trinity, uh, one of the Holy Trinity Batman stories. Hmm. I'm guessing the other two, don't tell me, The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. Well, yeah, because, you know, you're you're not too much, uh, you're, you're a couple years younger than me, so you remember 89 uh, and weren't a zygote uh, at the time. And you probably, I don't know if you had this, a similar experience, but when the Batman movie was coming out, I basically consumed every magazine that had Batman in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I bought the this little nice little hardcover book, like The Making of Batman. It had like, it's, it was really funny. It's, it's when you realize that the black costume might not be the best design choice, because when you put that on top of a black cover, all you see is like Michael Keaton's eyes and his mouth and the symbol. Yeah. But every article, every magazine, every, you know, like everything about Batman you read, it all, you know, and this, growing up Catholic, this is why I think of, of it this way, is that, they always talked about three stories in the name of the Dark Knight, the Killing Joke, and the Year One. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> well, it is true. You're right. And and you know, like they would mention the cult, but the cult was still pretty new at that point. Uh, and you know, the cult was like one of the four graphic novels that were at Walden Books. Yes. Uh, so it was important, but. You know, they would always have, like, images from Dark Knight or Killing Joke, uh, and they would always talk about year one, 
So when I was 13, it was very important. I felt like if I didn't read this, I had no street cred. So uh, I'm, that's one of the main reasons I'm excited is that now I get to show off, you know, almost 30 years later. <laughs> well, you know what? You were playing the long game. It paid off. <laughs> that movie's going to be 30 years old next year. I know. I know. It's <laughs> Speaking of movies, though, that's an interesting segue. Uh, speaking of movies, the reason why I am talking about so much Batman in the same year that we're celebrating Superman's 80th anniversary... As many of you know, I like to plan ahead. Uh, it basically there was when I first started my show, there were moments when I nearly didn't get something out, and that kind of that kind of disappointed me. I mean, a I was unemployed, so it's not like I had anything else to do with my time. But you know, b I mean, I did I I gave you guys my word. I mean, I told you that every single week there's going to be a new episode of my show. You can set your watch to it. And one of the things I discovered is that there's no way, at least, that I can do this and keep a monthly a monthly release schedule unless I know where the hell I'm going and what I'm going to be doing. And so word reached my ears that there was going to be a new solo Batman movie starring Ben Affleck, and it, it was tentatively scheduled perhaps for the summer of 2018 or maybe maybe the fall or the winter of 2018 and that was the expectation a lot of people had based i must emphasize on absolutely nothing this was just what a lot of people were assuming and so on the strength of all of this basically hearsay and innuendo i recorded 24 well i should say 23 episodes of my show that were all about batman and this seemed like a, a really convenient way of offloading everything, because, you know, what else am I going to do with 23 episodes about Batman? So, here we go. A huge mega series, And then, <laughs> there's been a delay. And it's too late for me to back out of releasing all these episodes now. So, I'm kind of stuck with it. So, you know, anyone... And this, by the way, extends to my co-host. Anyone who considers themself, uh, themselves a... Uh, Died in the wool Superman fan. None of this is meant to be a poke in the eye or anything like that. It truly is a. Uh, it's an odd quirk of timing, but let, don't read into anything beyond beyond all of that, guys. This is what happens when you plan ahead, maybe a little too well. So uh, anyway, let this be a lesson to you. So um, as a guy that um, fails to 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 meet most of his deadlines dude i i i can say nothing <laughs> I, I i and i'm not even kidding and i'm not saying that to be you know like I, i'm being you know like sheepish or i'm trying to damn you with faint praise or whatever your ability to get your stuff out on a regular basis uh i it's not something that i <clears throat> it's not something that i look at and say oh wow I'm a terrible human being because I can't do that. I just look at it and go, wow, he can do that. And I can't. And that, th that is significant. So, Well, thank you very much. I should say, though, that, you know, ever since episode 200, I think, I have rescinded my promise. I no longer guarantee a weekly release schedule. 
anymore. Okay, I've done it 200 times, or I had done it 200 times. I don't think I need to keep proving myself, so that's not a burden I care to... Anyway, yeah, so I think that's probably enough fanning my own balls. Now, to kind of get into uh, the uh, nitty-gritty with, with this story, which is to say Batman Year One, you talked about how... Basically how you were introduced to this story, which is... I, I, and I do kind of like your your comparison of this to the Trinity because I mean, yeah, there, there was, there was that time, but once you finally read it, you know, what were your thoughts? Like, wow, this is everything that people told me that it would be, or, or did you come away from it, from it thinking, well, I don't see what all the fuss is all about. Um, I saw what all the fuss was about. It took me about 20 years to realize the only like sticking point with with uh, the story that kind of bugged me, and I don't know why it took me twenty years to figure this out, but but there was always something that kind of unsettled me about it, and and it has to do with the ending. But I would hear again and again from people that I knew at school that read comics, it's like, oh, they just need to film that, and I never mm. could agree with them, and then I realized why. But I, I remember really enjoying it. And it's it's kind of funny because I I read it around the same time that I read Dark Knight Returns for the first time. And for a 13-year-old, Dark Knight Returns is weird because uh, there's a woman with Nazi boobs and you just don't really know how to feel about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're just you're just figuring out some other things in and of itself. Uh, while you go into that complicated time of adolescence. And then, you know, there's a Batman story with Nazi boobs. But I, I I just remember really liking it and really enjoying it and being glad that I read it. Hmm. Well, uh, my introduction for this was actually October the 21st, 1990. Um, it was, that was my... Uh, 10th birthday and for my 10th birthday my mom bought me as a birthday present um it was this leather bound volume called the complete frank miller batman and for those of you who are laughing now just keep in mind there was a time when you could com compile everything batman that frank miller had ever done between two covers now don't think you could do it today back then you could and basically it consisted of batman year one um, a uh, then there was the Dark Knight Returns, and then sandwiched in between was this. It was almost like a backup story. It was called Wanted Santa Claus, Dead or Alive, and the high concept behind this is that Batman Year One. This is where Batman starts. The Dark Knight Returns is where Batman ends, in some sense or another, and then literally. At the exact halfway point of his run as Batman, well, there's Wanted, Santa Claus, dead or alive. And that was what we were supposed... Or that's that. I remember that being like the marketing gimmick, like the post-hoc marketing gimmick that was tossed out there. Now, I think the actual truth is, I don't... I mean, apart from the fact that Frank Miller drew this story, I don't really see how this relates to Year One or The Dark Knight Returns, but... Maybe I'm just overanalyzing stuff. <laughs> Do you remember that, that volume by any chance? Uh, it, it's funny that you talk about that volume because my sister Ginny gave it to me for my 16th birthday. And I, I had it a couple of months. And a friend of mine from Chorus 
saw it and she was just like, Ooh, can I read that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Debbie, oh. go ahead. And, and I lent it to her. Oh. And like a day later, uh, I was like, Hey, do you got the book? She's like, well, I left it in the chorus room. Uh, didn't, didn't you find it? And I'm like, I was thinking in my head, you didn't tell me you were leaving it there. But my, the words out of my mouth were, you know that the Votech kids have a uh, study hall there in that room, final period, when they get back from the, the Votech facility, right? Oh, yeah, that book was gone. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have since gotten another copy. Uh I, I I I waited six years on eBay to find one that was reasonable, because people want like five hundred dollars for that book sometimes. Oh jeez. Uh, and I'm like, no, but uh, no, that Santa Claus Wanted Dead or Alive was part of a I forget the name of the book, but it was a special that came out in seventy nine eighty. Uh, that had like a Jonah Hex story and a Legion story and that Batman story. And the running through line of it was there was like the star of Bethlehem shown in all of the stories. Yeah. So that's why at the end there's this, if you read it on its own, there's this star, this light coming through and it just like, it means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but if you read all the stories together, it actually makes sense. But yes, I, I uh, that book and the Joker stacked deck collection was the were the two leather bound Batman books that were at Walden books for uh, forever. Yeah. Um, and the stacked deck was purple. It was a really nice looking book. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't really justify getting it because <clears throat> it's basically just a repackaged greatest Joker stories ever told. And I think it maybe has like one or two extra stories in there. Yep. But God, that was a neat looking, except for the cover. I mean, it was this, as I recall, it wasn't that like a Frank Miller joke. I've never been big. It was a Kyle Baker joker, I believe. Kyle Baker. That Okay, that's even worse. Well, what? I mean, Kyle Baker. What's the difference? But um, I don't know. It's just I, ne I was never big on the Frank Miller or the Kyle Baker joker. I just thought it just looks damn goofy looking. And I love <laughs> uh, I, I love a weird looking joker, guys. I, don't get me wrong. But that... <laughs> It's a big ball of what the fuck. So, <sighs> all right. But um, I guess to get into uh, brass tacks, uh, what what uh, Bailey and I, uh, well, actually I say what we decided upon, what I decided upon uh, and what Bailey graciously agreed to was just a, just a quick little uh, blast through the Wikipedia synopsis of this. That way in the unlikely event, some of you have never heard of this story before, or you've never read it or, or just whatever you'll have some kind of context for what we're talking about. Otherwise, you're hopelessly on your own. So, story synopsis is as follows. <clears throat> the story recounts the beginning of Bruce Wayne's career as Batman and Jim Gordon's with the uh, Gotham City Police Department. Bruce Wayne returns, to, returns home to Gotham City at the age of 25 from training abroad in martial arts, manhunting, which sounds kind of suggestive, and science for the past 12 years. And James Gordon moves to Gotham City with his wife, Barbara, after transfer from Chicago. Both are swiftly acquainted with the corruption and violence of Gotham City, with Gordon witnessing his partner, Detective Arnold John Flass, assaulting an Afri uh, African-American teen for fun. 
After refusing a proposition from a teenage prostitute called Holly Robinson, Bruce is reluctantly drawn into a brawl with her violent pimp and then uh, subsequently gets attacked by several prostitutes, including dominatrix Selena Kyle, because this is a Frank Miller story. Two police officers shoot and take him, meaning Bruce, into their squad car, but a dazed and bleeding Bruce breaks his handcuffs and causes a crash, dragging the police to a safe distance before fleeing. He reaches Wayne Manor, barely alive, and sits before his father's bust, which, again, sounds kind of suggestive, requesting guidance in his war on crime. A bat chooses that moment to crash through a window and settles on the bust, giving Bruce the inspiration to become a bat. Gordon soon works to rid corruption from the police force, but on orders from Commissioner Gillian... Is this Gillian or Gillian Loeb? I always said Gillian. Gillian? Oh, yeah, I guess because Gillian's actually a, a woman's name. Okay, whatever. Um, on orders from Commissioner Loeb, ha, ha, several officers attack him, meaning Gordon, including Flass, who personally threatens Gordon's pregnant wife. In revenge, the recovering Gordon tracks Flass down, beats the holy snot out of him, and leaves him naked and handcuffed out in the snow which I can only describe as a fate worse than death, considering where they live. As Gordon becomes a minor celebrity for several brave acts, Batman strikes for the first time, attacking a group of thieves. Batman soon works up the ladder, even attacking Flass while the ladder is accepting a, a drug dealer's bribe. After Batman interrupts a dinner party, attended by many of Gotham's corrupt politicians and crime bosses to announce his intention to bring all of them to justice, including Carmine the Roman Falcone, Loeb orders Gordon to bring him in, meaning Batman, by any means necessary. As Gordon tries in vain to catch Batman, Batman attacks Falcone, stripping him naked and tying him up in in bed and dumping his car in the river. You know, there's a lot of people getting tied up and and left places naked in this story, I just now realized. Infuriating the mob It's it's a light motif of Frank Miller. He he did the same thing in uh, Daredevil Man Without Fear. Yes, he did. Yeah. And the hookers, too, so there's your trifecta, I suppose. Assistant District Attorney Harvey Dent becomes Batman's first ally, while Detective Sarah Essen and Gordon witness Batman save an old woman from a runaway runaway truck after Essen suggested Bruce Wayne as a potential Batman suspect. Essen holds Batman... I'm just going to take a sip off of my Dr. Bourbon here because my throat's getting a little dry. Yeah, I, I don't envy, one, you having to read this, and two, the guy who had to write this. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm, <clears throat> at the very least, this doesn't, this isn't like broken English or anything like that. I mean, the, the person who wrote this <laughs> seems basically literate, so... Uh, yeah, and, and there has been no point where, where I've been listening going, did this person actually read the book that I read, uh, which sometimes <laughs> happens with Wikipedia entries, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Essen holds Batman at gunpoint while Gordon is momentarily dazed, but Batman disarms her and flees into an abandoned building. Claiming the building has been scheduled for demolition, Loeb, meaning Commissioner Loeb, orders a bomb to be dropped on it, forcing Batman into the fortified basement where he abandons his belt as it catches fire. A SWAT team led by uh, trigger-happy officer Brandon is sent in and attempts to trap Batman in the basement. 
After tranquilizing Brandon, Batman dodges bullets as Brandon, uh, Brandon's team opens fire on him, barely managing to survive after two, uh, uh, after two bullet wounds. Enraged as the team, uh, team's carelessly fired bullets and injured several people outside, Batman beats the team into submission. I'm not kidding, that's what the Wikipedia summary says. Batman beats the team into submission, and after using a device to attract the bats of his cave to him, he flees amid the chaos. After witnessing him in action, Selina Kyle dons a costume of her own to begin a life of crime. As you do. Gordon has a brief affair with, um, with Sarah Essen while Batman intimidates a mob drug dealer for information. The dealer comes to Gordon to testify against Flass, who's subsequently brought up on charges. Upset with Gordon's exploits, Loeb blackmails Gordon against pressing charges with proof of his affair with Sarah Essen. After bringing Barbara uh, with him to interview uh, Bruce Wayne, investigating his connection to Batman, Gordon confesses the affair to his wife. Batman sneaks into Falcone's manor, overhearing a plan against Gordon, but is interrupted when Selina Kyle, hoping to build a reputation after her, her robberies were pinned on Batman, attacks Falcone and his bodyguards, aided from afar by Batman. Identifying Falcone's plan as the, uh, as the morning comes, the uncostumed Bruce leaves to help. While leaving home, Gordon spots a motorcyclist enter his garage. Suspicious, Gordon enters to see Johnny Vitti, which is to say Falcone's nephew, and his thugs holding his family hostage. Gordon decisively shoots the thugs. Again, this is in the Wikipedia uh, synopsis, guys. Decisively shoot, Not just shoots. Decisively shoots the thugs and chases Vitti, who's fled with the baby. The mysterious motorcyclist, now revealed to the reader as Bruce Wayne, rushes out to chase Vitti. Gordon blows out Vitti's tire on a bridge, and the two fight hand-to-hand, with Gordon losing his glasses before Vitti and James Gordon Jr. fall over the side of the bridge. Bruce leaps over the railing, overcomes the laws of physics, and saves the baby. Gordon realizes that he's standing before an unmasked Batman, but says he's practically blind without his glasses and lets Bruce go. In the final scenes of the comic, Flash turns on Loeb, supplying Dent with evidence and testimony, and Loeb resigns. Gordon gets promoted to captain and stands on uh, the rooftop, waiting to meet Batman to discuss somebody called the Joker, who's plotting to poison the Gotham City Reservoir. The end. Somebody has poisoned the water hole. (laughs) You were going to make that joke, too. (laughs) Okay. All right. Sorry. (laughs) Hey, not not a problem. Not a problem. Now, as comics, and, you know, Bailey, I've heard that you've read one or two comics in your time. As comics, it does need to be said that these comics look pretty different from a lot of comics that were on the spinner racks at the time. And what I mean by that is the coloring job that was done by Richmond Lewis. There was really nothing else out there that looked quite like this with all of these secondary colors, you know, of oranges and purples and and all and just kind of just generally desaturated drabby colors. And so I guess to start with probably the most superficial stuff like does that enhance the story or is it just kind of annoying after a while? I think I can't think of this story looking any other way. Uh, that's that's the weird thing is that when I remember reading this when I was 13 and thinking this looks different 
I'm not sure I like it, but it's consistent throughout the entire four issues, which I didn't think of it as four issues at the time. I thought of it as a single volume. Um, but I, I just, I, it's not something that I find annoying. It's not how I usually like to see a Batman story colored, but this thing is so of itself that I can't think of it in any other terms than the, you know, whenever I see, you know, I've, I've looked at the, the comiXology versions and they did some recoloring in the hardcover that I have. Uh, and I, and I, I just sold them, but I used to have the, uh, the actual individual issues as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think it looks good unless it's in this, in the copy I'm holding in my hand, which, uh, we were joking about this before we actually started the episode, uh, kind of dates itself by having graphic novel science fiction on the spine. Um, <laughs> uh, and this was not put out by DC comics. This was put out by Warner books, uh, and printed in Canada. So I, when I think of this story, this is how it looks. It's this color palette. Yes. Uh, and that it, it, it looks weird any other way. You know? Yeah. I, I tend to agree. And when I, when I was first getting, cause I, this was, this was not the first comic that I ever got as a kid. It's not even close, but I was definitely a collector by the time I got this volume and, you know, kind of like you, I mean, I, I don't think I could have put it into words. Like what exactly is it that makes this, this story different from everything else? Not just like some of the content. Cause some of this stuff like for its time is, this is some pretty balls out stuff, you know, but there was just something that was just instantly different, you know, just, to, just, just to look at it. It just looks different. And, I think this ultimately works to uh, to benefit uh, the story, you know, rather than the usual candy colors that comics tended to rely on, especially back in the 80s. This had a just a different mood going for it. Everything's kind of uh, uh, drabby. There's really nothing that's all that bright or colorful, and it's I think a pretty actually a a pretty ingenious color palette for a Batman story. You know, when you think about it, you know, or at least mm-hmm. this type of Batman story. As to the story itself, this was, uh, it took me a while to, to really wrap my mind around this. Cause I read this and the dark Knight returns basically at the same time, cause I got them in the same volume. And so I instantly appreciated the fact that there's a clearer sense of comic book storytelling that I was comfortable with because the dark Knight returns is it's, it's pretty abstract. Like as comics go, I mean, that can be a little bit dense and sort of hard to to really get into you know and really understand like what am i even looking at in some cases or what's the flow of action like here you know this is a lot easier to follow which is good but the bad news is the storytelling may be clearer but if what you want is a batman story that's filled to overflowing with batman where batman goes around beating the snot out of everybody which is pretty much what i wanted when i first read this this may not be the story for you. I mean, would you agree that there's a fairly, I don't want to say minimal amount of Batman, but there's not really, I mean, when you start counting up the number of pages he actually appears on, there's not very many of them, you know? Well, and, and that's the, the weird thing about this story is that, you know, it, it, it's called Batman Year One, and it is supposed, and it, it took me, 
I, I was not always the the swiftest of 13 year olds. It actually took me a couple of readings to realize, oh, this actually takes over the course of a year because there's dates mm-hmm. that for some reason I was ignoring. I have no idea why. But uh, w- when you think of superhero origins, uh, you know, <clears throat> you have things like Man of Steel. Uh, as an origin or you know where at the end of that first issue you know he's in the costume and then you have five other issues of of superman doing super stuff right uh or you look at uh, you know wonder woman's origin from this time period which was the first six or seven issues of the perez series where she is pretty much doing her thing um through the course of the story uh, even though the first issue barely contains her as a Wonder Woman, uh, it's actually pretty much all set up at that point. Right. But, you know, when, when you think of, like, this is the origin of the character, there's like, okay, here's the moment of conception, here's the training or or world-building part, here's that this person in the costume, here's the villain they're fighting, here's the triumphant end. You know, right. where the where the hero stands victorious and, you know, maybe stands on a ledge while the bat symbol shines in the distance and you have the strains of a Danny Elfman score in the background. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, that's what you think of. And, and, and not only do you not get that in this, <laughs> but you also have Ace, who is up to this point. What what whatever feelings you have about Batman in his world, he is either the bumbling police guy, or the dude that just is at the crime scenes that hands Batman a file folder. Right. You know, they take that guy and make him just as important to the story as the hero you're there to see, and the fact that that doesn't bother me shows me that Frank Miller did a hell of a job setting up James Gordon in this story. Yes. And took risks and chances with the character that I don't think, this is not a criticism, but they no one really was asking for this. I mean, no one really needed yeah. <laughs> Gordon to be a kind of a philanderer. But, because when you think about it, I mean, like, this is your, like, you know, this is Frank Miller basically setting the table for the post-crisis Batman which is in effect what this story is. And, you know, his way of introducing all of this is, well, among other things, he makes Jim Gordon a philanderer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what an interesting way, because like that is, I mean, that's a very risky way of telling your story in the, at least in that, you know, you can really prejudice readers against the character, you know, but what I kind of like about it is that it does kind of give that this isn't really like a, a film noir type of story really at all, but there are elements of film noir to it. And one of the uh, key elements of film noir is that nobody's virtuous. There are no heroes and virtue is impossible, maybe even undesirable. And that, I guess on that basis, Gordon is very much a film noir character in this story, even though this isn't necessarily a film noir story. Like, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, down these mean streets, I walk alone. 
you know, that, that sort of thing. And the, the, another way, and you kind of touched on this, that this kind of is different from other comic book origins or superhero origins is that there is no colorful villain. There is no Joker, you know, he's mentioned at the end. Uh, even when Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo did Zero Year, which was like the new 52 origin, mm-hmm. the Riddler was like your central villain. He is the one that set everything in motion. So there you have, thanks to the television series, one of the big four Batman villains in, in your Batman origin, where here... Um, Miller populates the story with gangsters, essentially. And this is the story that made me love watching Batman go up against organized crime. Uh, I just think it's a great concept because as much as I like him going up against Two-Face or Riddler or anything, there is just something really cool about him just dropping in the middle of a room full of mooks and suits <clears throat> with handguns and just taking them all out and having to, you know, basically work his way up and, and deal with corruption. And, you know, this is where Gotham city went from <clears throat> really went from the other metropolis yeah. to a shithole that no one wants to live in. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of came into its own, I think almost as a character in these books that it's almost like the city doesn't want to be saved. No, uh, you know, it's it, Gotham City is very, as a city, is very happy to go along with having corruption in the police force, a mobster kind of running all the rackets, and like low-level people like the, the pimp that uh, Selena and, and her friend Holly work for that Batman takes on. You know, they're allowed their street corners, but there's bigger fish and then there's bigger fish and the police grease those wheels and Flass, who is not a fat piece of crap, uh, <laughs> as he would be portrayed elsewhere. And it's kind of funny because Flass, I've seen Flass two other times outside of this story. Mm-hmm. One was the marriage of Sarah and Commissioner Gordon in a Legends of the Dark Knight annual. Uh, where he comes back to get his revenge. But then you real, read one of your favorite Batman stories ever, The Long Halloween, and I say that facetiously, sir, so don't think I'm baiting you. I, I know what I'm saying when I say that. Uh, he hangs himself uh, during the course of the story. So, Dark Victory. Uh, was that Dark Victory? I, yeah. See, <laughs> I confused my 13-issue tw- Tim Sale, Jeff Loeb, Batman mystery. Uh, well, and you also hit upon a little bit of discontinuity there, because if he hung himself in Batman's second year, what's he doing showing up after the uh, after the wedding? So yeah, that, that's the thing is 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 and, and at that point, this this was my amusement with that is you could argue it because it was post zero hour, <laughs> okay. but beyond that. Lo- it's one of those things where I realized Loeb probably just never read that story. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I say that is it's not like any mook off the street wrote the wedding of, of, of Gordon and Essen. That was a Denny O'Neill scripted story. Yeah. So not many people like to piss on an O'Neill story uh, for any, you know, 
for for any you know out of disrespect to to you know the master essentially but mm-hmm. you know you you have this this world that is okay with being bad and batman is this batman and gordon are these two outside forces one born and made in the city but spent most of his early adulthood you know, studying with the Kirigi and Henry Ducard and all the stuff that was added later, and Gordon, who comes from Chicago, um, where so he he he's he's taken this job because he called out corruption in Chicago, but didn't have all his ducks in a row, so he had to leave, and now he's trying to bring up a wife and a and he's got a kid on the way, and then he. I, I think it's it's amazing that most of us are okay with James Gordon in this story, despite the fact, like you said, in the middle of it, he has an affair. And uh, I'm not jumping ahead to the movie to talk about the movie, but I remember sitting there watching the year one film with my wife, and they get to that point, and she had a serious problem with that. Like, hmm. <laughs> like it was one of those moments where someone sits up and starts yelling at the television um, because they have come across something that they have a serious moral objection to. Mm-hmm. And yet it's okay because, you know, him and his wife get a divorce and they end up married anyways. And and frankly, I think, you know, the first Mrs. Gordon gets her ultimate revenge on, on Sarah Essen at the end of No Man's Land. But is that too soon? Jeez, <laughs> oh, that is so cruel. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, when that issue came out and that happened, I actually was stunned. So, but so don't don't think that I'm trying to make light of a story that I don't think is good because holy crap! But yeah, I I, I went there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, the speaking of risks and chances, uh, when Frank Miller first began drafting this story. He obviously knew he wanted to include Catwoman, and if he wanted to use Catwoman the way that she had been used up to that point in comics, well, uh, she could be a amnesiac stewardess, or she could be a battered wife. Yeah. So, in a story where Catwoman is a hooker, would you say that Frank Miller, this like this is the lesser evil? I, I never liked it, um, but I'm not sure I liked their attempts to retcon it later any better. Because uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it may have been... An, do you remember that four-issue Catwoman miniseries that was always on the wall at the comic shop in like the late 80s and early 90s? Um, maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but I just remember it being... It was a mature reader book. Uh, and it was basically Selena Kyle's origin up to that point. And I think this is where they brought Ted Grant into teaching her how to box. Um, but I think she, it was later revealed, if I'm remembering it correctly, that she was pretending to be a prostitute. Oh, Lord. That she wasn't actually a dominatrix. It's what she did so that she wouldn't actually have to perform the duties of a prostitute, I guess is the best way to say that. Right. Um, and she was really just looking out for Holly, um, who <laughs> came back in the Action Comics Weekly strip, uh, having gotten married, uh, and there was a whole thing with that. But then 
she came back again right after Infinite Crisis and was like serving as Catwoman while Catwoman had a kid. Right. Uh, if all of that sounds incredibly convoluted, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I, I think it was the wrong way to bring her into the story. But once she's there, I like that she's just this she becomes this thief that puts on a costume because she's in, she's like, well, that looked cool. I want to do that. Uh, and then gets really mad when they keep calling her either giving credit to Batman for what she's doing or calling her Batman's sidekick. Right. Um, I think Frank Miller has a problematic relationship with women and it really comes through in his female characters. Well, he, he does seem to have a bizarre fixation on hookers i mean and i mean it's almost tempting to say well who doesn't well i don't but uh no i, I don't know i mean it, it's weird it's and, and and actually and that sort of you know leads back to something i that i wanted to ask a second ago but like forgot until just this moment so because i have add is this gotham city that we're seeing in year one would you say or is this sin city this is the prototypical Sin City. I think with with Gotham, you have to... With Gotham, because you have Batman, there's always going to be a superhero quality to the city. With Sin City, he got to populate it with flawed heroes, but the city was still a... In Sin City, when you had your Marv or whoever that dude... Uh, God, what is that actor's name? He It's the line from the film that I really like. He goes, sometimes you just have to prove to your friends that you're worth a damn. Hardigan? Um, which, yeah, where, where they're not saving the city. They're dealing with what they're dealing with and standing by their friends or the people they care about. Right. So, you know, Bruce Willis's character isn't a hero, He's just trying to protect this little girl from a sexual predator. He's not trying to save Sin City. Batman is trying to save Gotham City. Hmm. So there's a lot of prototypical Sin City in there, but by its very nature of existing in the DC universe, it can never go there all the way. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the uh, I guess like the reason I ask is because, you know... Uh, I don't consider myself to be an authority on on uh, Batman comics, but prior to year one, the, the sense that I get is that there's a personal sense of satisfaction, I guess, that, that Bruce Wayne gets out of doing what he does, you know, and it, it's not that, you know, the city is hopelessly corrupt or anything like that. There's a psychological itch that Bruce Wayne is scratching every time he puts on the mask and goes out into the night. That's not necessarily the case here. I mean, this is a city that I honestly don't think Bruce could could attempt to save any other way. This is a city specifically that needs Batman. So rather than Bruce Wayne needs to be Batman, it seems that Miller's view is that Gotham City, whether it knows it or not, Gotham City as a collective entity needs Bruce to be Batman. And 
So I guess which of those is more preferable to you? Like, do you get do, do you get off more on the idea of you know Gotham City is such a piss hole? This is the only way I, the the only way to uh, save it is by burning it down, you know, and that's what I'm going to have to. Or is or should this be a little bit more of a personal type of a thing for for the character? I think it should be a personal thing, and it, and it's one of the reasons why I think you had James Gordon's origin in this. Mm-hmm. Because if you go with the typical origin of Batman up to this point, where Gordon is all, already a top cop in the city, I mean, the, his very first appearance, Bruce Wayne's hanging out with Commissioner Gordon, uh, and then he just takes Bruce to a crime scene because 1939. Uh, apparently, that's just what you did. You just took the civilian into the crime scene and hoped that he didn't contaminate it. Um, but... <laughs> I, I, I think you couldn't have that. You can't have Bruce become Batman when Gordon is the top cop because Gordon would not allow systemic corruption within his police force. So you have to have, you know, and, and it's one of the beauties of the story is that it's why it makes Batman so heroic is that he is able to, with the assistance of James Gordon, bring down the corrupted establishment to make Gotham a better place. Now then the crazies just show up, which makes things different. But I got the sense in the Batman stories that followed this, and especially in the Batman stories from the era where I read it the most, which is the late eighties and the early and the, and throughout the nineties that while Gotham was a rough city, there it was better than it used to be which is why they had to create bloodhaven which is like gotham's brother that never got his act together so nightwing had to go take care of that <laughs> i i just I, I i like i like the way it's presented that there is this oppressive force that, that is keeping the citizens of gotham down and it's only because of bruce wayne becoming batman and this is where, where Batman begins got it right, where he becomes a symbol, uh, a symbol not only to the people of Gotham, but a symbol as a warning to the people. You know, th- that great scene where he busts into the dinner party that Commissioner Loeb is at mm-hmm. and, he, and, he, and, he, and you, you see him setting everything up and the and the smoke grenade goes off and the lights go out and he's just like you have feasted on the you know the the souls of Gotham. Your feast is over. And he puts the whatever that thing is. They said it a bunch of times in a Dairy Queen commercial last summer. Uh, but he puts the cover on the food. You know, he's not being a superhero at that point. Even though Batman is a superhero, he is delivering his thesis to why he is there. And he's there because Gotham created him by being a shithole. I keep using that term. Well, it is in the zeitgeist right now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No one would argue if he referred to Gotham City as a shithole. I think everyone would be like, ah, no, actually, I'll give that to him. Yeah, Um, fair point. I'll allow it. (laughs) But, um... But he, but it was because the city had gone to seed that his parents were killed in a random street crime. So, you know, as much as 
as much as Batman saves Gotham, he's only saving Gotham because Gotham created him. Because let's face it, if Bruce's parents hadn't died, he wouldn't give a shit about the city. (laughs) (laughs) He, you know, that, that great story to kill a legend where Batman and Robin go to the alternate earth, uh, thanks to the phantom stranger. And they actually prevent the Waynes from getting killed. There's a scene where Dick as Robin is watching Bruce Wayne, like throwing a tantrum over his toys. Yeah. And he's just like, God, this kid's a little shit. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's only after his parents are almost killed that he, that he starts to lighten up. But what if that had never happened? What if that inciting incident had never occurred? Bruce Wayne would have been a rich, young white guy. Um, At best, he could be a nice person. At worst, he's going to be skiing in Aspen, and 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 maybe getting into some kind of trouble where he has to leave the country, but only because he's so freaking rich, he's he's able to do that, yeah. you know. So, I, it's one of the reasons why I like this story so much is that it is a person trying to 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 deal with the trauma of their past, but also kind of make sure that it doesn't happen again even though that is never explicitly said in the text. Right. No, I, I, I get that. The, uh, you know, you, you touched on this a second ago, but one of the things I kind of want to just call some attention to is that scene where he, he basically ambushes. These aren't just gangsters. This is more like the, uh, the hoi polloi of the Gotham city. I was actually just thinking of that word, the hoi polloi. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Great minds think alike. And so do ours. And I guess I guess the thing that I that I really liked about this, especially when I was a kid, is that you know there are times when Batman is gonna just dive headfirst into action and 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 then kick everything that even resembles an ass, you know, and he'll do that, you know, that's fine. But there are there are also times when he's gonna be a little bit more patient and skillful, and he sort of again it, it's theatricality and deception, you know, he. He uh, cut. He, he throws the smoke bomb through the window. He cuts the the uh, power to the house. He sets off uh, shaped charges that blow a giant hole in the wall, and then he he uh, stalks in stalks into the room like he's the devil himself, and he's basically furthering his own myth, and he's doing it in a way that he's not going to risk getting himself killed in the process, you know, and. I'm usually indisposed to think of, you know, well, what would it be like in the real world? Well, as inappropriate as that is sometimes here, it there's some logic to it. If there was really a Batman, this is the way he'd have to do stuff mm-hmm. probably the great majority of the time just to guarantee that he gets out alive. You know, he would have to, uh, you know, project a certain kind of image and then, you know, stack the deck in such a way that uh, people have reason to ask, you know, maybe this guy isn't maybe this isn't a guy, maybe this is like a monster or something, you know, or generally somehow not human or not completely human or whatever. And I kind of like that, you know, I mean, he has this reputation with the, the Gotham city underworld, but where does that come from? Cause every time they see him, he's walking down the street, you know, chit chatting with passersby like he does in the Max Allen Collins run. And so, you know, <laughs> evening, where, citizen. yeah. And, and I mean, 
God, that, that's just a weird run. But, uh, <laughs> the, you know, it, 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 and I don't mean that to sound, you know, mean or anything. It's just, it, it's the Bronze Age trapped in the post-crisis universe and what the hell am I supposed to do now, you know? And here, you know, Batman, he's, he's setting out an agenda and he's projecting an image as he does it. And I think that this is an incredibly well-crafted, well-thought-out little miniature sequence, you know? This isn't the centerpiece of the issue, and God knows it's not of the story, but it's you get the idea, you know, Batman is going to go on and do this or stuff like this just throughout his career. And it's not going to be unusual for him to do little psychological, you know, operations like this at times. You know, I dig that. I'd also argue that it's his first real victory in the story, because when he goes out disguised as the army vet... Um... I mean, he could have taken down the pimp, but he wasn't counting on all of the other prostitutes uh, jumping him and somebody stabbing him in the leg and then getting shot by the police. Um, And then when we see him in the costume for the first time, it's not this like really kick-ass dramatic moment. It's this really awkward fight where somebody hits him in the head with a television. Which would hurt. And, And then, you know, he almost kills somebody or causes their death uh, and then has to prevent that. And while he's doing that, some dude like whips up and, 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 and like ax kicks his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like, everything is just going badly for him. I mean, it, one of the things that I like about this and why it can only happen here um, and why you could do little bits of it, but in the end you would have to have the hero rising to the moment is that, when the cops surround him in that building, mm-hmm. he gets out, but just barely. You know, that, that isn't like the ultimate, like, I have this all mapped out. I know how this is going to go. He is constantly having to think of things, you know, think of different things. And it's really only the bats at the end, which are the true, like, well, this is tech getting me out of it. Right. Um my favorite moment in that entire sequence, by the way, is, and this is just who I am as a person. Um, one of the officers that is on the SWAT team shoots at a cat and Batman singles him out and throws him through a brick wall towards the end of that sequence. And it's just like, you're the one who tried to shoot the cat. It's just like, Holy crap. Batman defends everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is a good moment. And, You know, it's just such a, like in the middle of this, let's face it, I mean, all hell truly has broken loose at this point, you know? Uh Batman's been shot for the third time in this story, and he he still takes a moment to save the cat, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not, I mean, it's kind of like a dark Adam West, you know, and and a weird, because Adam West would do that. You tried to shoot the cat. You know you shouldn't do that because he's a de- he's a defenseless animal. Well, same basic sentiment, but a very different outcome. You know, and I don't know. I just I, I really do dig that. You know, but you know you do raise a good point whenever you say that. You know, in a weird kind of way, Batman doesn't really have very many resounding victories. And you know, in this story, it basically this is four issues about how Batman's best efforts are foiled either through his own incompetence or through police interference or Catwoman getting in the way or God knows what else. And the first thing that he does mostly right from start to finish is 
save the baby. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you know, he doesn't... He could have gotten himself killed any number of ways, and it's mostly dumb luck that got him through most of this. And, you know, this is a less competent Batman. So, you know, this isn't something I'd want necessarily in every single story. You know, how does Batman screw things up this week? But, you know, a little bit of... Uh, misfortune sometimes can go a long way that maybe he didn't necessarily have everything worked out, you know? And, and that sequence where he saves James Jr. is the prime example that I point to when people say, just film this. Yeah. You go ahead and film that Batman movie where the climactic scene has Batman not in costume. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that because everyone would hate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, the only reason we accept this is that it's a comic book and we know that next month he's going to be back in the costume and everything is going to be kind of back to normal. But in a movie, no, you you need him fluttering down the the bridge, cape extended, grabbing the kid, turning himself around, throwing up the grapple line and then, you know, landing thanks to his grapple and then handing the kid over to Commissioner Gordon. The only way you would have to change is that through the course of that, his mask got ripped. But when he's going into that final thing, you have to have that that moment in. You had it in the first Batman, the Batman 1989, where he tells Vicki Vale he's got to go to work and the Elfman score kicks in and you see him suiting up Uh, or in Batman Returns when he. he sees the pr- tr- trouble going on on TV, goes down to the cave, and it's just like, what do I wear today? Black suit and r- black rubber with a bat on it, black rubber with a bat on it. And then just <laughs> because those are the moments that get us as fans. That's what we want to see. Let's face it. Batman's a great character, but 50 percent of him is his look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, that's actually that that is kind of an astute observation, you know. Um, he does need to be in the costume if you're going to have like the big explosive climactic finale and all that stuff. But this actually does kind of raise a question that I've had all along. If I take my 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 glasses off, my vision sucks, but I can see well enough. You know, probably not well enough to drive, but I could I, I can see well enough. I'm not going to get myself killed trying to get uh, some more Doctor Bourbon, right? <laughs> but. Depends on how much Dr. Bourbon you had before you got behind the wheel. No, fair enough. Um, Well, I meant walking to the kitchen. (laughs) Not actually. Drink responsibly, people. Um, But no. Um, But at the very end, you know, Gordon makes a point of saying, you know, I can't see a damn thing without my glasses. And part of me, especially when I was a kid, didn't really believe him. You know, I always kind of figured that. Look, Gordon, he's not just a cop. I mean, he's top cop in a in a really horrible city. I mean, the only way you can get to where Gordon is, which is commissioner of police, is if you're really good at recognizing a uh, recognizing a scam when you see one, you know? He mm-hmm. made his name, you know, fighting against corruption and stuff. He's good at his job. He knows what he's doing. And it seems to me that a guy like that, even if he couldn't figure out who Batman was just by a relatively simple process of elimination. He saw him and he can say what he wants about, you know, I can't see so good without my glasses, but let's be realistic. Nobody's that blind. And if you are, they won't let you be a cop. So 
either way. Was he telling the truth, do you think, or am I reading too much no. into this? No, the way I always saw it, um, and this is, you know, what they call headcanon, but in my headcanon. Trademark Emily Middleton, you got to give credit where it's due. Yeah. Um, TMM. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Gordon knows exactly who Batman is. He just never admits it out loud. He doesn't say it. Because once he says it's it's real and he has to do something about it. Uh, it's why the scene in No Man's Land, when Batman and Gordon have their very tense confrontation right before they decide to start working together again. You know, Bruce takes off the cowl and, and Gordon has his back to him. And he says something like, don't you think I could have figured it out by now? Yeah, that's not the point. The point isn't the trust of knowing who he is. The point is being able to rely on him. And Gordon strikes me as that person that can compartmentalize things <laughs> to a very good uh, to, to his own end. I mean, look how look at all of his narration throughout the story. He is constantly compartmentalizing. You know, it's just like I don't do anything. I just take notes because I know I have to take notes if I'm going to take people down. You know, when, when he has his confrontation with Flash, um, in probably one of the most badass scenes in the entire storyline, where he throws the bat to Flash and then annihilates him, uh, which is just like, I mean, one of the best lines of the book is, He's had Green Beret training. It's been a while since I've had to take down a Green Beret. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, holy shit, who are you? <laughs> are you like a SEAL or something? I mean, are you Ranger trained? I mean, it's just like, Army holy Ranger shit. was the only thing I've ever been able yeah. to figure. <laughs> I mean, here is a guy that somebody taught him how to take down the badasses. So, to me... He knew when he went and interviewed Bruce Wayne. You know, there was all the obfuscation and the and 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 you know his ability to provide alibis. But he knew then, and after seeing him, he knows. But this guy just saved my kid. You know, I have a son that is continuing to draw breath because this man dove off a bridge to save him. You know? Yeah. So that's not the guy you immediately go, ha, ah, thanks for saving my kid. By the way, turn around, you're under arrest. Yeah. <laughs> and for the rest of their relationship, they don't talk about it. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I like the idea that Gordon knows who he is, but it's not an issue because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Why do you think he lets Bruce do things or why he's kind of friends with Bruce Bruce, you know, ostensibly is hanging out with Jim Gordon to get inside information, but I think Gordon's kind of hanging out with Bruce to kind of give him the nudge. Yeah. When he has to. Well, my sense of it was that in the comics, if look, if it wasn't this moment, then it was some other moment. I don't know. But at some point along the line in triple underline this, in the comics, Gordon he just put two and two together. It's not like he had an official investigation or anything like that, but at some point along the way, the penny dropped. And I don't think he knew 
I don't think we're supposed to believe that he knew in the animated series, but I'm pretty sure that he knew that that Babs was Batgirl in the animated series. And I always thought it was kind of interesting that I don't think it, I don't know if it was ever made like completely explicit. Hey, Babs was, was Batgirl in the comics. I don't know if that was ever outright said or or if that was something that he knew about, but you know, head cannon is an interesting thing. I mean, my view is that in uh, certainly at some arbitrary point in the second season of Lois and Clark, Perry White knew. I don't know yeah. about so much about the first season, but some point in the second season, my head canon, it, it's not that it demands that, that Perry White be in on the secret, you know, secretly in on the secret, but a lot of things make more sense if if he knew and on some level or another was doing his small part to kind of help with the deception and the cover-up, you know? Well, it, you know, when you... You you said if if Gordon's the top cop, then he knows. If Perry White is the best reporter ever, and now he's just an editor because that's just where his career path went, that he couldn't put two and two together. It's it's like Lois figuring it out, you know. I mean, I know in the in 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 the post crisis era there was the big dramatic him telling her, but. I just like I would like to see I mean we kind of saw it in Man of Steel where she had it figured out before everything was where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of had that in Smallville as well where she knew before he was officially Superman. But the great thing about Smallville is that she learned it and then kept it the fact that she learned it from him from a really long time. And I kind of like the idea that Clark is just surrounded by his three best friends, Jimmy Lois and, and Perry, and they all know, but they don't say anything because that complicates the relationship. You know, the, the, if Perry knows, and that actually reminds me of that Lois and Clark scene, I know. Yeah, and that's a good one too. <laughs> <laughs> but then I would it be a man in my position if I wasn't in this position, you know, so, but I just like the idea that, that, that they just, that they help him by not burdening him with the fact that they know who he is, you know, like they're not lying to him, but they are, but they're lying to him on the same level that he's lying to them. And for pretty much the same reason. So, yeah, and that's the kind of thing, like, you know, fiction, like real life, you you can always negotiate stuff like that. You know how to handle situations like that. But, I mean, how do you convey something like that in TV or a comic or something that literally everybody is always going to be able to write and have the same take on, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I will say, though, I've never, maybe All-Star Superman, but I honestly don't think I've ever otherwise have ever thought that Jimmy knew the secret. I mean, it just... It's got to be secret from somebody at the Daily Planet, and you know, I mean, like Steve Lombard. There you go. Okay, fine. Yeah, well, well there's we'll, your sacrificial meal. <laughs> yeah, well, I would hope he doesn't know because if he knew, and then he was doing his stuff anyway. Well, you just don't. He's an idiot. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't poke the bear, dude. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I could, I don't know. Two Superman guys. We it's, it's easy to get lost in the weeds on that. Yeah. Uh, to bring it back to Batman, though. Um, 
And you know what? Now that I think about it, I think you've probably been on my show more often to talk about Batman than anything else. So how's that for kind of kind of weird? Um, go ahead. I said huzzah. Oh, OK. Um, this this story obviously has a, a tremendous amount of uh, influence. I mean, it, this was this was, I would say, the cornerstone of the Batman mythos right up until zero year. And honestly, may still have some cachet even today. And this is one of the things that as a Superman fan, I've always kind of envied Batman for having. Because for the longest time, if you wanted to be a Batman fan, then, you know, broadly speaking, what you need to know starts getting set out in Batman year one. And then from there, it gets layered on and layered on and layered on. And yeah, some some older stuff is brought into continuity, but you know, generally what you need to know starts right here. Mm-hmm. And Batman fans had that for decades, really. And it's a pretty recent thing in the like in the big scheme of things. It's pretty recent that that was taken away from them. And I even got the idea that that the creative forces behind Zero Year weren't necessarily thrilled to do it they just recognize the necessity that look we've we've you know we've changed so much with this character now he he it really is time now to do a new origin but it was with regrets that they did it whereas with oh Super- yeah uh, snyder was was very intimidated to do it uh he said so on kevin smith's podcast oh really okay wow yeah okay I, that i did not know it's it's nice to be proven right i guess but superman for a long time, Man of Steel was kind of like the unifying force for Superman, or at least a certain segment of Superman fandom. And things that were happening in Superman comics began with Man of Steel and then moved forward. And then that was not the case anymore. And Superman has had so many retcons and so many new origin stories and so... uh, in, in a couple of cases, either just alternate universes or even full-scale reboots, that it's like Superman fans can't even agree on whether or not he should have the trunks anymore. You know, <laughs> I mean, we are way past continuity at this point. Now it's down to, like, what does this man even look like? You know, and there's no there's no unity to it whatsoever because there are uh, there are, you know, wings of the Superman fandom that will always prefer... Burns Man of Steel. And then there are others that are, they're a little bit more into Birthright, where others are maybe more into Secret Origin for God only knows what reason. Then maybe still others are more on, more in line with the new 52, which, and so on, you know, and it's like Superman doesn't have this, this rock solid foundation anymore. And it's actually to go off topic a bit. It actually does make me a little bit concerned about Superman's longevity you know and what his prospects are so you've got the floor well well, to 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 compare the two uh and i am 100 percent sure that there were batman fans <clears throat> that read year one and were completely horrified and turned off but they did not have the vocal anger that man of steel had against it uh and and if you're like are you talking about the movie or the comic i I would argue both well pick one but 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 we're we're talking about the comic here and because from the jump 
there was a huge schism within the fandom of Superman. Whereas with Batman, even though the stories leading up to 1986, uh, I'd argue are, are, are fine and, you know, remind me a lot of the animated series in, in, in terms of tone. Uh, Mensch had him being a very chatty Kathy. I'll admit that, but you know, there, Batman did not have the rock bottom from the, you know, complete and utter reboot that Superman had. Right. Uh, in fact, it really took a long time for all that to sort itself out. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the biggest retcon outside of James Gordon starting his career in Gotham at the same time Batman does is the fact that Alfred was with Batman from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and from what I understand, that's because Frank Miller just didn't do his research <laughs> or didn't care. He just liked it. So it's kind of funny that this thing that a lot of people think now is really important uh, of Alfred being the guy that kind of raised Bruce wasn't the case for nearly 50 years of this man's career. He was just the dude that kind of rocked up to the, to Wayne Manor after Robin showed up and said, I'm going to be your Butler and just stumbled upon the identity. Yeah. So, so, but it's kind of funny because man of steel, thanks to, I, 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 I firmly believe the tireless dedication of Mike Carlin, uh, to keep that, boat out there it really wasn't until eddie berganza took over as editor and they tried their first attempt at retconning and fandom went no 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 sir i remember that cover geez on that was that superman 122 or it was like it was god it wasn't it was it after the whole was it after our world's at war no i'm pretty sure it wasn't because he had the regular yellow yeah he had the regular yellow s and yeah because they did that story and then our world's at war happened and they did the follow-up story that undid the first story (laughs) yeah and i always got the idea like was that a was that basically editorial saying uh, yeah oops Uh, i think it was i honestly do i i do not have any I, i i never asked Loeb. Uh, and the one time I, I got a chance to ask him, uh, and I did not get a chance to ask Joe Kelly when I was on a panel with him at Dragon Con this year, last year. Uh, but I got the sense that this was them trying to see if it would work. And we said no. And then they just went ahead and did it with birthright. And we were still kind of pissy about it. And I think by the time Secret Origin came down, we were also tired as a fan base. And so we went, okay, fine, whatever. Two years later, boom, New 52. It's like, what? God, yeah. <laughs> but Batman, thanks to year one, thanks to everyone loving it, and thanks in large part, I think, to Legends of the Dark Knight as a series. You know, like the one thing, one never try to read the first storyline from legends of the dark Knight with year one. Cause it doesn't work. No, uh, I say this as someone who tried, uh, there is a lot in that first storyline, uh, shaman, mm-hmm. uh, that takes place during year one, but it's almost like Denny O'Neill's idea of how it should go. 
Yeah. But the thing that that carried over was kind of like the ongoing internal monologue, the journal basically of Batman. And I think because you had that title telling those early stories and keeping that year one type of thing going, I think the relative, I think the only reason year two was popular for as long as it was is because McFarlane was an artist on it. Yeah. Uh, and the Reaper looked badass. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, that idea of Batman, everyone just accepted because they kept perpetuating it and no one took a shot at it. Whereas with Superman, they did. And the reason they didn't do it with Batman is because Batman fans had it easy. <laughs> I mean, when you really look at Batman in the in the early post-crisis era, okay, so we have the, the ending of the Doug Mensch era with Batman 400, where Ra- Ra's al Ghul or Ra's al Ghul, depending on your flavor, breaks all the villains out of Arkham and Batman has to take him down. Gee, that sounds and, familiar. And then, boom, Denny O'Neill's the editor. We have the two Legends crossovers. And we have year one and then year two. And then you have Mike W. Barr doing his thing in Detective. And then Max Allen Collins and eventually Jim Starlin doing his thing. And Mike W. Barr was doing 60s Batman, but with an 80s flair. Yeah. And Jim Starlin was writing Bronze Age Batman stories with uh, heavy political and contemporary uh, overtones. I wouldn't call them undertones. They were overtones. Oh, my God. Holy crap. Uh, Gorbachev and the Ayatollah Khomeini were in his run. Yeah. Uh, So Reagan showed up on a regular basis. You can't get more late 80s than that. No. (laughs) I mean, the only thing you can really laugh at is that he had a villain that had a name that sounded like KG Beast. Um, And it it really wasn't until Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle took over Detective and Marv Wolfman was on Batman that the Batman that came into the nineties really started and the post-crisis Batman really started to solidify. So I think because you had such an explosion with year one and everyone seemingly loving it and treating it as a sacred text. And the fact that the books were kind of on a roller coaster ride until 1989, I, I, you know, it's at that point you're on the ride. Why do you want to mess with it? Whereas with certain Superman fans, they wanted to burn John Byrne at the at the stake. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is one of those things that, <clears throat> I mean, Batman fans have always struck me as being a little bit more flexible. I mean, cert- there are certain segments of Batman fandom. You know, you named one of them sort of off mic a, a little while ago uh, that are very fond of a certain set of movies they really don't seem to take well to other iterations of Batman. But broadly, I would say that Batman fans tend to be very well acquainted with the fact that you've got Adam West Batman that somehow exists in the same sort of idiom as Frank Miller's Batman over and against Scott Snyder's Batman. Each of them is equally Batman, but they're all completely different from one another. And they seem able to contextualize all that stuff somehow. Whereas Superman, for whatever reason, his fans have never, 
they've never really been able to completely accept the fact that, you know, times change, tastes change. <laughs> and that maybe <laughs> what? I was just laughing at what you were saying. Uh, it's, it's, I have I have something to say, but I want you to finish your thoughts. <laughs> well, it, it and basically the, I mean, the, the way that I try to explain, you know, Bronze Age Superman to anyone who's never read it is, imagine the Silver Age, but without some of the stuff that you probably think is goofy about the Silver Age. But it's basically the same continuity, mm-hmm. just not quite so goofy is all and i don't know there's just a very i don't know there's a flexibility that batman fans just seem to have that superman fans maybe don't always have so uh i'm gonna kick it over to you what you got it's it's built into the dna of the character uh it hit me a couple years ago when i really started to think about why superman fans lose their goddamn minds so much uh (laughs) over everything and it's the dna of the two characters for decades superman was the preeminent hero of dc comics you know between a radio series a successful television series that was in perpetual syndication and then you know big huge motion pictures you know four to be exact Uh, plus the Supergirl film. Even though there were people that didn't like the character, DC kept branding him and protected that image. Uh, You know, it's like what John Byrne complained about at the end of his run. He he said that Dick Giordano looked at him and said, look, you got to understand, there's a Superman you're doing, and then there's a Superman we're merchandising. And because of that, even though the costume shifted and the cape got longer or the symbol shifted, you still had the same Superman look, whether it was drawn by Wayne Boring, Kurt Swan, you know, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. You know, whoever, you know, John Byrne, Dan Juergens, all the way up to Ed McGinnis and all that. These are the image was always the same, you know, blue, blue shirt, blue pants, red boots, red trunks, yellow belt, symbol, cape, symbol on cape, unless you don't feel like animating it. Batman was up until 1988 constantly on the verge of being canceled. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Everything that was done to Batman in the 50s was done because it was working for Superman. It's why we had Batwoman. It's why we had Batgirl. It's why we had Ace the Bat Hound. And when the TV show, you know, everyone's like, well, after the TV show, that's when he was really popular. That show was popular for two years, people. Yeah. It burned brightly and then it was gone. And then Batman was a joke. And he kept having to change from being a sci-fi character back to a detective to pop art to a grim Avenger of the night to Frank Miller's version of it to, you know, Norm Brayfogle and Nightfall and everything that happened to that. And his costume went through a major metamorphosis. Now, major in that they put a yellow yellow oval around the bat, but that was a change in the costume. They never changed Superman's symbol. Hmm. 
And then in 89, the movie comes out. He's all in black. And again, because fandom is the way it is, I'm sure there were people that were pissed off. But me being 13, it was like, wow, that looks kind of cool. So when they brought that to the comics in 1994, I didn't care. And then they changed his costume again after No Man's Land. And then they changed it again. And then they changed it again. Batman's entire history is littered with change. So I think that's why his fans, you know, there were people like, you know, you'll, you'll get into the arguments with the people that are like, you know, Batman Brave and the Bold, the animated series is too silly. You know, we, 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 we need the Batman animated series. <clears throat> Look, by the way, that costume changed. <laughs> so, so it's like one of those things where, the reason why Superman fans are the way they are is because DC protected the the image so much that it created these people. Bat Superman fans are Catholics. Batman fans are Lutherans. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. There is dogmatic, and then there is okay. Our priests can marry, and that's okay. <laughs> Well, and, you know, I mean, like, just as somebody who kind of likes theology to begin with anyway, I mean, if you look at the doctrinal evolution of Lutheranism, you know, that it's taken over the last 500 years, Luther might not necessarily recognize modern-day Lutheranism. Yes. So, you know, that uh, to me, that kind of, that holds up. I, I like that I, I like that, that analogy. It works for me on multiple levels. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Well, um, one of the things that we haven't really talked uh, too much about is, and I'm not going to keep you much longer because I'm sure you, you've got stuff that you want to do. Um, one of the things that we haven't really talked too much about is uh, the art in in uh, Batman Year One. And when I think of uh, Batman, especially in the 80s, you know, and this is maybe going to be a controversial statement to some people, but uh, the first thing I think of is... Uh, Don Newton and how much I hate his art, and so that is not what we get here. This is a this is a a very different type of uh, style that's being used by. How do you pronounce this guy's name? Is it Dave Ma Mazzicelli? Ma Mazzicelli, yes. All right. And the only reason I know that is I heard Miller actually say it once. Oh well, all right. There you go. Um, or, well, I mean, it's just, there's always some hipster shit stain in the room that's going to call him Mazar Kelly. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, is the hipster shit stain? Is he actually right? So anyway, but, um, this is a different look for Batman. For one thing, I mean, it's, I wouldn't exactly go so far as to call it like Bruce Tim exactly. But I can see some, uh, a little bit of connective tissue there, but this is just not the, what had become the house style for Batman in the eighties, you know, that, which to me whether this is accurate or not, will always be personified by Don Newton. And so, you know, this is like, I, how were you warm to this art right away or did it, or did you need some time to just kind of digest it? Uh, this is one of those times where I was a little ahead of myself. Uh, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, back when I was 13, I thought everyone was ugly and I really liked that. Ah, like, like this is an ugly world. This is the style of this story, and Batman looks good, but 
you know, Commissioner Loeb looks like a thumb with wrinkles on it. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a potato, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, the person I would clo- most closely compare Mazzuchelli to is Tim Sale. Mm. Uh, in terms of, and, and they have radically different styles, and I realize that. Oh, but, but I see what they, you mean. But they are both completely capable of drawing ugly people. Yeah. And making you not think, wow, that's an ugly person. I I, I don't want to look at this. You look at it and go, wow, look how they drew that person so effing ugly. Um, I think, you know, after – when you read Dark Knight Returns, which actually goes through an art metamorphosis through its four issues. Yeah. uh, Where I much prefer the art in the first issue compared to the fourth. Where Batman goes from looking really cool to looking like – he got left out in the sun uh, and wrinkled up. Um, I I, I think having this artist draw this story was perfect. It was like a perfect melding of atmosphere because if you would have, and I'm not, I'm not going to say if you had had Don Newton for, for a couple of reasons. One, I actually like Don Newton and two, he was dead by this point. So, so there's there 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 are both logistical and artistic reasons behind me not wanting Don Newton to write write draw this. But if you would have had Jim Aparo draw it, it wouldn't have been the same. No, it needed an artist of this quality. And the fact that Mazzuchelli didn't really do a whole lot in comics or mainstream comics, I guess I should say. I mean, it was like this and Born Again are the only two things that I'm familiar with. Yeah. And I love both of those stories because the artwork fits the story. It's, right. it's, it's like a perfect melding, and I can't picture it done by anybody else. Neither can I. And, you know, I've, I've wondered a couple of times. I mean, there when it comes to working in you know, mainstream comics, uh, you know, some people like it and some people don't. You know, the idea of, you know, you have to hit the monthly grind. And, you know, I get the idea that some of them, they they can't quite shake the suspicion that what they're doing is drawing a coloring book. And, you know, for as patronizing as you and I might find that this is somebody that they have a gift and, you know, maybe, you know, licensed superhero comics intended for children isn't necessarily what they want to do with their lives. And all I can say is, you know, God bless, you know, uh, but I will say though, that I always thought that, Masicelli's work here in year one was just that extra bit more polished than what we saw. There was nothing wrong with Born Again. I like Born Again. But what we see here is something... And it, it, and you know what? Maybe it's just... Uh, I forget. Who, who was it who inked Born Again? Was that Klaus Janssen? I think so. I would have to look at that. Well, uh, whoever it was. And the the... I get the idea that because of the fact that he was inking his own work uh, here in uh, in year one, it this is a in, in a weird kind of way. Maybe this is a little bit m- truer to who Masicelli was or is, I suppose, as an artist. But when you start looking like at like the broader spectrum of the stuff that he ended up doing, this this is not necessarily the most logical career path for somebody of his stature. I mean. When you draw Born Again and then you draw Year One, I would think that it's not necessarily the same as being the guy that that drew the storyline called Doomsday. But <laughs> for the most part, you can pretty well 
you know, write your own ticket after something like that. And actually, I was wrong. It looks like he was the uh, his own inker on Born Again, too. So maybe he just grew that much that fast. I have no idea. But, I mean, they were only like a year apart. So we're talking about some major growth in his style over the span of a year. But whatever. Point is, you know, this is... I think this would actually be, in a weird kind of way, this would actually be a lesser story if it was drawn by by anyone else. You know, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't. I mean, can you imagine? Just try to put this in perspective. Could you really imagine uh, this story with this coloring job as drawn by Jim Aparo? Now, I like Jim Aparo, but I mean, is this really the coloring style we want to match him with? You know? Yeah. Well, and and that's my point is that Aparo and I love Aparo. Uh, honestly, when I close my eyes and I think of Batman, I think of Jim Aparo. Really? First and foremost, wow. followed almost immediately by Norm Brayfogle. Um, <clears throat> because I just, there is something about the way he drew Batman that is primal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got to tell you, when, when Aparo had Batman punch somebody, you felt it. Yeah. He was, he was such a visceral artist and I, and, and, and yeah, as was pointed out to me by one of the RAs and when I was in college, it's, 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 it, yes, if you look at Commissioner Gordon, he is Bruce Wayne with white hair and a mustache, but uh, Batman looked really cool. Yeah. And the formative Batman stories of me when I became a collector in 87, uh, the, the two issue, the two stories that I always think of are Batman 416 with Nightwing meaning Jason Todd in the post-crisis era for the first time mm-hmm. and, and a death in the family. And to me that, that was, you know, you, you're always kind of, your first is always special to you, I mm-hmm. guess is the best way to say that. Yeah. So, but I would not want Aparo. I would not want Norm Brayfogle. I wouldn't want Gene Colan to draw this story. Ooh. Uh, even though Colin is probably the, if we're, if we're going to list, I mean, to be fair, Don Newton had a lot of shadowy work and shadowy elements in his work, but Colin could draw ugly people as well. So it, it, it might've worked, but to me, you can't have anybody but Mazzucchelli do that. Or or whatever the hipsters are saying nowadays. Mm. Uh, I, I just can't see anybody else. I really can't. Uh, and I think that is a testament to how how much I love the art in the story that I don't want to see anybody else doing it. Hmm. Yeah, the only gripe I, I can really come up with is that, you know, uh, an extended run, like an actual run on Batman, not just, you know, one storyline, but more work from Mazzuchelli on Batman. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I would have wanted. But then on the other hand, it's like, do you really want more? Do you want to take the risk of ruining? You know, I don't know. So. Well, that uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure you and I could probably go on at length about this, you know, probably forevermore. But the last thing I'm going to ask you about before I uh, uh, let you go, um, there was an animated movie of uh, Batman Year One, and I'm just going to let you take the lead on this. Like, <laughs> how did you how, like? How'd you get into that? Uh, I I enjoyed it. I I think it is very amusing that the man playing Jim Gordon on Gotham was the voice of Batman uh, in that movie. <laughs> um, 
I think it's one of those times where the person playing doing the voice of the character, because uh, didn't Brian was Brian Cranston Jim Gordon in that, or was he Jim Gordon in another one? I thought it was a different one. Don't hold me to that, but uh... but no, the voice acting was great. It was it was an adaptation of the comic, and and and, and here's the thing. Um, it kind of proves my point that it only really truly works in a comic. Mm-hmm. But as an animated film that is meant to adapt the material, it succeeds. Uh, I, I, I like it. I like it a lot, actually. Uh, I haven't, I've seen it a couple of times. It's not one that I take out like every couple of months and watch again. But I thought they did a really good job of nailing the feel, uh, you know, the, giving us the sense of the passage of time, making Jim Gordon a complicated character, uh, making Batman, you know, showing the the Bruce Wayne that Frank Miller wrote. I think they were very, I wouldn't say slavish to it, but they were very respectful of the material. Mm-hmm. I kind of came at it from the other standpoint. I mean, for as faithful as it was, this isn't the story that should be adapted. Look, I don't care what other story you go with. <laughs> this is just not a movie, you know? It's just, it's not. I mean... One of the, th- I mean, look, people can love or hate, uh, you know, Chris Nolan's uh, work on Batman, but one of the one of the things I think he intelligently did was recognize, you know, there are elements of this I can riff upon. There are elements of this I can adapt directly. There are elements of this I need to frickin' ignore uh, as much as I can, you know. And he struck a pretty decent balance with all of that. And for anyone who really disagrees with that imagine just sit down and watch the animated year one and then ask yourself okay now what would i do to make a sequel to that as a big screen live action movie good luck and so you know i mean i guess if you were to do this from the standpoint of like a like a gritty tv drama mini series or something like that or a netflix series or limited series you know maybe but yeah generally no and so, I don't know. I just wanted to ask you about that. So, now, um, getting into what's happening next week, uh, Michael, you and I talked about this, you know, uh, privately on Facebook through PMs and whatnot, but for my listeners who maybe don't listen to Michael's show, and shame on you because you should be listening to his shows, uh, it was... I want to say it's like a year ago or a year and a half or something like that. You and you and Leyland uh, sat down and uh, did a bunch. Uh, you did two episodes, as I recall, about uh, the year one annuals, and I'm going to be tackling those in the in the weeks to come. So just fair warning, you know. I mean, you are. I think you, I think I already told you about this, but just so you know, uh, it, it really is a coincidence in timing. Those episodes were completed at about the. Or I was putting the finishing touches on them at about the same time your episodes were coming out, and so. Just a coincidence, I guess. Well, I look forward to it because uh, Andy and I had a lot of fun talking about them, but I'm really curious about your your take on the uh, stories. Well, uh, yeah, well, I listened, I, you know, once it became too late to change mine, I actually did finally summon the courage to listen to yours, and it's like, oh, good. Now, you know, where we overlap is stuff that naturally we would overlap on, but, you know, I, I think you and I had very different ideas about some of these stories, so... Anyway, something to look forward to. But before uh, you and I call it a night here, I want you to tell everybody 
where all they can find you. Because I don't think there's a single location, is there? <laughs> Actually, uh, there is. Uh, last year, uh, and I'm still kind of it, trying to coalesce everything and get everything back on track and get from crisis to crisis up and running again and all that kind of stuff. But I decided that uh, having a bunch of different sites for various shows uh, is a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> So I, I basically decided I was going to consolidate everything under what I call the Fortress of Bailey-Tude Podcasting Network. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And you can find that at fortressofbailytude.com. Uh, when you go to that site, along the right-hand side of the screen are all of the shows that are current or, in the case of, like, Bailey's Batman podcast, uh, I did it, it's done, but all the episodes are still out there. Uh, you can go basically and find any episode of any series. New episodes are posted on the main page. I did have one of the shows that I do called The Overlooked Dark Knight that I do with Andy Leyland, where we're talking currently about Bronze Age Batman stories uh, current, through the Len Wein era. We also, this year, 2018, and the, these episodes may or may not have come out by the time I get this to this because I've been sick and really behind on getting anything done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't edited a show in like three weeks. It's oh, kind of weird. Um, but we decided that since we do two episodes a month, one episode of Overlooked is going to be about that Overlooked era of the late 70s and early 80s. And the other is going to be looking at the animated Batman books. Uh, oh, you mean like Batman Adventures and whatnot? Or? And Batman and Robin Adventures, because we call ourselves a non-index index show. Uh-huh. So we're not like starting at one point and doing absolutely everything. So instead of like starting with Batman Adventures number one and moving forward, we're doing one issue of Batman Adventures and then one issue of Batman and Robin Adventures. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, Hell of a way to run a railroad. Uh, well, we just, basically it's an excuse for Andy and I to get together and talk about Batman once a month. Uh, and, and then we record it and release it as two episodes. Uh, there's another show over there called It All Comes Back to Superman, uh, which uh, you have an episode that, as of this time, has not come out, but it should be out by the time this episode pops up. Uh, but it's basically that's where I just talk about whatever iteration of Superman I want to. There's going to be a series uh, later this year, starting in March, called Superman Many Lives, Many Origins, uh, which is... <clears throat> I do eight or ten parts. I think it's eight parts. Um, where I'm just looking at all of the various origins of Superman in chronological order. Including and noting, uh, Birthright? Including Birthright. Mm, okay. uh, including Secret Origin. Including the Lothar novel from 1942. Mm. To the comic strips. To just basically anywhere that there was a major origin. Talking about it on the on radio and on film as well. Uh, and that is my attempt to celebrate Superman's 80th birthday. From Crisis to Crisis, we'll hopefully be back later this year. Uh, Views from the Long Box has two more episodes, and then it's probably going to kind of go the way of I did it for 10 years, so maybe it's time to do some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and that was a long list of stuff, but everything is at FortressOfBaileyTube.com. All right. Well, I'm sorry to hear about you know, views from the long box, but, uh, you know, hey, 10 years. I mean, that's not a bad run. Just ask Tom Welling, so. All right, well, um, I just want to thank you once again for uh, 
for uh, joining in on all of this. This conversation definitely went in some kind of unexpected directions, but uh, such is life. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Batman, annual number 19, or as I like to call it, why you shouldn't bully people. So that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Two and a half hours later, we are out. Ha, 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 ha.